Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 129 of the Adoption Connection Podcast. You know that we highly value hearing all parts of the adoption triad, and we love presenting a diversity of voices. And today we have a very remarkable and unique interview that Melissa does with our guest, Ed DeGangi, who is an adoptee who did not search for his birth family until he was almost 70. And I honestly enjoyed this interview so very much. And I think you are going to also. Melissa, can you tell us more about Ed? Yeah. So Ed was adopted at birth in New York City. He's an only child and really didn't second guess his adoption story. He didn't have a lot of questions as an adoptee until he was in his late 60s. I don't want to give away too much of it here because he does such a fantastic job of telling it. He and his wife, Linda, live in Hillsborough, North Carolina, and they have one son, James. So without further ado, I'm going to let Ed tell his story. Ed, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. It's so good to have you here. Melissa, thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Yeah, so we often highlight stories of folks from all sides of the adoption constellation triad, as it were. And you reached out to us with really just an incredible story. And you're an adoptee yourself. And so I'm really excited to kind of let our listeners in on your story. Yeah, I am a baby scoop era adoptee. I'm approaching my 73rd birthday now. And I was brought home from the hospital by, by my adoptive parents at a day old. So I, you know, this goes back to 1948 and the story begins there. Yeah. And we, uh, we don't, there aren't many adoptees, I think in your generation who are sharing their stories. And I think that's really important because so much has certainly changed in the landscape of adoption over the last few decades. Oh, I agree with you totally. And I think that was an era of, of secrecy. Sometimes just because it was a, a shameful type of thing. Other times because the baby doesn't need to know and he'll be fine. And it was done with all good intentions. You know, today I think the, the adoption landscape is far more wide open with open adoption and a, and a discussion and the, and the adoptee knowing his roots. Do you remember when you first realized you were adopted or how long did that take? Because like you just mentioned, we weren't having as many of these open conversations. And of course you were a white baby adopted into a white family. And so there was no reason, like in my case, you know, I was a Korean baby adopted to two white parents. So at some point in time, someone was going to notice. So what do you remember about your adoption story? You know, I've been trying to put it into sequence. There were probably three events, two of them. I'm sort of juggling, which was the first I remember at a time wanting to go out and play with my friends and my adoptive mother making a what seemed to me a rather awkward and clumsy statement about, well, if somebody says, you don't, you're not ours, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. That, that must have felt kind of like, huh, why would she say that? <laughs> exactly. I sort of pondered it for a minute and then I did what most kids did. I said, can I go out and play now? 
Yeah. And just, just, it was in the back of my mind. And I, I remember it today. Uh, the other piece was when I was seven years old, we went to Europe and we were in Paris and my parents and I, you know, because we were traveling all together, went to an orphanage in Paris. And, you know, when I asked, what are we going to an orphanage for? It's, well, we're thinking, you know, wouldn't it be nice for you to have a sister? And, you know, so that, that gave me a little pause for thought. And it was, uh, I was also thinking, I kind of like my life just the way it is. I don't need a sister. But, you know, so those two kind of laid the groundwork. And then some, sometime, I'm thinking before my teens, um, my parents had a fireproof metal box in which they kept important papers and such. And I think one day when they were out, I was curious about what got kept in there. And I started going through it and opened up an envelope in my mother's folder. And, and there were two documents in it. One was my amended birth certificate. I, I was adopted in New York in New York city and it read certificate of birth by adoption. And the second was a much longer document that I didn't fully understand, but I kind of looked and there was a, there was a signature at the bottom with a name that I didn't recognize. And I, yeah, I folded them up, put them back and, and honestly never, never asked a question, never said a thing and rather took the approach that if my parents were not talking about this, I shouldn't talk about it either. Oh, that's so interesting. There's no way I could have kept quiet about that. I don't think. <laughs> I think that's the difference between men and women too. I was I was just talking with a with some you know with another man who's had a kind of a similar adoption path as myself, and you know, and his his attitude was when you give a man a TV dinner and the television set and everything is good. Yeah, so interesting. So you know, even though you weren't talking about it, did you think about? that discovery often or were you able to put the pieces together like do you remember having this realization of like I am adopted and like were there other you know did that start a domino effect of you know other questions well you know I I think it's it would be hard to say that there were no questions you know I certainly I'm thinking okay that name on the paper must be the woman who gave me up for adoption but I can tell you over the course of my childhood and my adulthood, I rarely, rarely gave any thought to to who she might be. I, uh, I I made the natural stereotypical assumption that she was a high school girl who went out, stayed out too late one night, and a couple of months later realized she was pregnant. And and that's what I worked with periodically. I would think about it. And, you know, and there were one or two times when I said, who would possibly give up a kid like me? <laughs> well, and, good for you. <laughs> but, you know, beyond that, I I rarely thought about it. And I, I can tell you, I never, never, never thought about who my father might be. Yeah. So interesting. Um, I, I can resonate with that. Actually. I, I don't think a lot about my birth mom, but I can say for sure that other side of the equation, I mean, clearly there was a birth father, but for Obviously, whatever reason, yeah. you know, that, that crosses my mind even less. Um, do you ever feel like or did you ever feel like growing up as a child, did you ever struggle with a sense of belonging or identity? Was there ever this, like this nagging feeling, even before you knew that like something wasn't quite, didn't, the pieces didn't quite fit or, or there was some other, you know, identity of, you know, something is different between me and my parents. Well, you know, as I grew 
and got older, I got to be six feet tall. Both of my parents were five foot two. Okay. You know, so that was, you know, that was a question. I'd periodically ask, how come I'm so tall and you're so short? And, you know, and my mom would always say, well, look at Uncle Connie and look at your cousin Greg. And, and I, I accepted that. Even, even when I knew or had learned that I was adopted, I still, you know, in my, in my naivete, I kept on, kept on, kept on believing that. To your credit, I'm just barely five feet tall and my husband is only about five, four and our oldest child by birth, you know, so we have six kids, four of them are adopted Two, you know, we actually, they shared genes with us and he's five foot 10 and still growing. And we always look at him and we think, good night. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, my, my, my adoptive parents backgrounds, my father was Sicilian. My mother was Ukrainian and both of them came from very loving families. Uh, but you know, I can honestly tell you, you know, as, as loving and as embracing as my Sicilian side of the family was, I always had a sense of otherness there. I just, there was not a total fit. On my mother's side, I, I clicked much better with the Ukrainian people or felt much more comfortable there. And maybe it was a difference in people. Maybe it was a difference in when I learned what my ethnicity was is there was a lot of Eastern European background in my, in my DNA. Yeah. So interesting. Now was your adoption public to your extended family and kind of, you were the only one who didn't know, or was there a lot of secrecy around how you had even come to be in the family? No, you know, it's very interesting when I wrote my book. Well, prior to writing the book, yeah, I'd, I'd always thought, well, if I ask people about it, they're going to think I wasn't grateful. And I know that's a, that's a common stereotype. I, you know, I, I was, I would have been fine asking my parents if it was important. And I think they would have been very cooperative in, in explaining and even helping me, uh, search. But after they, they were deceased, my father died in the 1970s, my mother in the 1980s. So I didn't start this until 2017. So it was certainly a, a long period. I, I had a cousin who I decided to ask just to confirm some details that I had already found in my search. And, and she talked, you know, I finally called up one day and said, what do you know about my adoption? And we had never said that word before. And yeah, she never batted an eyelash. She told me what she knew. And when I, when my book was published, I had a, a number of cousins who read the part that said, I, uh, you know, but it was never talked about at home and I didn't realize until. Yeah, they sort of apologized and said, Oh, we all knew we should have told you. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, I was the only one in the dark, I guess. Oh, goodness. Was that realization hard for you to know that everyone knew and you didn't? Yeah, you know, it, it's been so many years. I, I, I don't think so. You know, and, and both the, yeah, you know, the cousins said, I knew, but my mother said, don't say anything. You know, the other cousins said, well, gee, I always knew that, but my father said, it's not something we should talk about. So, yeah, I don't think they were intentionally withholding. I think they assumed that I, you know, I knew everything that was suddenly in that book. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the book. So talk about the book, because I'll tell you, you know, we get sent quite a few books here at the Adoption Connection. And um, I wish I, you know, it was my job to read them all. And and, and one day I'll, I'll, I'll get to all of them um, slowly but surely. But I was 
captivated by your book. And I don't know if it was um, just a me thing, because as you're uh, about to share with us, your mother was not just the the high school girl who went out, stayed out a little too late. It was it was not a stereotypical story at all. And she was connected to the ice skating world. And I grew up just idolizing ice skaters. I, you know, was the girl who watched Christy Yamaguchi win the gold, you know, in the nineties, I was following all the, you know, the national championships, the world championships, all the things. And so I think there was something about your mom's story that just really drew me in. So if you're listening to this and thinking about whether or not you're going to read a Ed's book, just know that I, I may have a slightly biased opinion just because I was so fascinated by the ice skating part of the story. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a good story, I, you know, and it, it's been very well received. I, I began to write the book in 2017 when I finally went back to that big metal box, took out the envelope, took out the adoption decree, which is what I learned that that longer document was and found the name at the bottom that I didn't recognize. And I went to the library, sat down with Ancestry.com, typed in the name, and, you know, as many, I'm sure, have already discovered, a bunch of information came flowing out. And the first thing that I came across was a, a visa application dated not even a year after I was born uh, for travel between Miami, Florida, and Rio de Janeiro. And it was written Portuguese. What I could make out was the name that matched uh, her street address, which was a maybe a 15-minute bus ride from where I grew up, uh, and her her profession listed as an artista. And I had no clue what kind of artista. You know, we, we kind of conjectured over it, my wife and I. Uh, the other piece that was kind of earth-shaking at the moment was attached to that visa application was a picture. And it was the first picture that I got to see of my mother. And it was, uh, you know, I kind of looked all around to say, is anybody else watching this? You know, because it was kind of a personal thing that suddenly emerged. And, you know, she was very, very serious looking and solemn. And I I just, on social media, probably in the past few days, I posted that picture again, saying it was the only picture I've seen of her. And I've seen many where she was, so serious and solemn, and I, I wondered what she was thinking at that moment. But I, I went through a discovery process helped by many people, uh, some antiques dealers in, in Atlanta, Georgia, in particular, who had purchased a, a box of memorabilia that happened to be by birth, birth mothers several years prior. And when I finally traced them down, they, they had posted a blog with some pictures and some documents. And they explained the circumstances that they had no clue who the woman was, but it was a glamorous period and she looked like she was an interesting person. So when I traced them down, you know, it was um, exploring a f- possible relationship. Do you still have these things? And yes, they did, but we'll have to call you back. I'm busy, busy right now. <laughs> so, you know, I sat by the phone. I sat by the phone probably about seven days. And busy right now turned out longer than I expected it to be. So I finally messaged again and this time said, I believe that's my mother. Would you please call me? And probably within five minutes, the phone rang and, and the woman said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I got busy and I forgot you need to come here right now. 
Hey friends, we're jumping into the middle of this episode because we're really excited to share with you about the Insight Virtual Conference, which is happening on April 29th and 30th. This two-day intensive will help parents gain a practical understanding of your child's trauma, change your approach, and build healing connection and trust. You'll have the chance to learn from amazing world-renowned speakers such as Dr. Ivor Chasnoff, Deborah Gray, Jamie Finn, Lahia Cushman, Melissa and me, um, Jeff Noble, Dr. Laura Anderson, and Mike and Kristen Berry. Also, if you register through the link we're about to share with you, you will get exclusive free access to our new webinar, Creating a Safety Plan for Your Family. This is a training that we wish we had had before we were in the midst of crisis or even just had big challenging behaviors with our kids. So you can join us at the Insight Conference and get free access to that webinar at theadoptionconnection.com slash insight. Now back to the episode. And the woman said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I got busy and I forgot you need to come here right now. So, you know, we're, we're sitting in North Carolina. She's in Georgia. But within a week or a week later, we're on the road on the way to Atlanta. And, and she and her husband bestowed upon us this big carton of, of very personal memorabilia, all sorts of photographs and press clippings and things like that. And it turned out that my mother uh, had been a prominent performer with the big ice shows in the 1940s and the 1950s. She skated with ice follies, and then she spent five years with Holiday on Ice. She toured South America. She toured Europe. And I, I think the impressive part, though, was she left home at the age of 17. And she had been discovered while, while an amateur skater in a, in a show that was promoting the sale of war bonds. And as soon as she finished school, she left home. She traveled across the country by train alone to join a ice skating troupe in Vancouver, British Columbia. And for five years, her, her career was on the constant ascent. She had a couple of different partners, and she joined Ice Follies in 1947, and Ice Follies summered over in San Francisco every year. While she was in San Francisco, we later determined I was conceived in August of 1947. She had what was a summer romance with somebody from out in, out in San Francisco, and after she left in September, you know, they performed in Los Angeles and then took the train all the way to Chicago. And, and I surmised someplace between Los Angeles and Chicago, she said, this is more than, this is more than motion sickness that's bothering me. And uh, returned to New York secretively in January to manage her pregnancy and to make a very difficult decision as far as, you know, what she was going to do with, you know, as a single mother you know, with a very big career and, you know, and a, and a fatherless baby. And, you know, so she was kind of shepherded by her oldest sister and her sister's husband. They were the only ones who knew. And she kind of came to the decision on her own. And, and yes, yeah, so as fate would have it, I was, I was adopted right after birth. And, you know, how that the connections there were, were kind of interesting in themselves. 
Yeah, it, it is a fascinating story. You do a fabulous job of laying it all out in the book. Why 2017? What what struck you then to break out that metal box and send you down this <laughs> rabbit trail of of discovery about who your birth mom was? Yeah, I, you know, I, I've amassed that a lot. I can't point to one thing, but my wife's parents both had had moved to North Carolina to be close to us and the year before, and and both of them arrived in compromised health. Uh, not too long after their arrival, my wife's mom passed away, and in January of 2017, her dad passed away. And we were up in New Jersey, where they you know, they had come from to to inter his ashes. And nearby was the cemetery where my adoptive mother's family was all buried. And we were we were visiting there, and I. You know, standing over my grandparents' grave thinking, you know, I should really know more about them and what their roots are. And that tied also, and they came from Ukraine, that tied also to a book which I had read and was was reading again, which I think for the third time, called The Lost by an author named Daniel Mendelssohn. And it was his search for six relatives who perished in the Holocaust. And it, it's a magical book. It really is, or at least it gripped me. And he just told about his search. And because he had a, a big literary contract and a very significant name, he traveled all over the world looking for people who had known his, his relatives and might have some idea of what, you know, what ultimately had happened to them. And it just sort of caught my imagination. So I, I came home and, you know, my first stop was the library, as I said. My first attempt was looking at my adoptive grandparents. And when I started to see how easily the information came, it, it sort of clicked with me and said, okay, if you're ever going to do this, yeah, today's the day. Yeah, yeah. So fascinating. I mean, and what are the odds, really, that you would come across someone who had so much of your mom's belongings and you were able to piece together from that so much of her story and and even connect I believe to some half siblings right I have it was a remarkable coincidence to find that person who had purchased those items probably given the nature of her business you know I had expected she probably had had pieced it out and and sold everything but you know she was still sitting on it so yeah I that certainly led me down the path to knowing who my mother had been and I did locate siblings. I located a paternal, well, I, let me take a step back. I located a maternal half-brother. And I took quite some time to make contact with him. And I learned later that he had been in a, a rather calamitous fire, which you know had left him injured. And he had been in and out of, or in the hospital and then rehab for almost 28 months. And when I finally reached him, we talked and his question was, okay, tell me what kind of kin are we? And I explained to him and he said, okay, got to go now. And he said, but I'll call you tomorrow. And he is sort of like the antique dealer. He didn't call tomorrow. <laughs> so I waited a few weeks and reached out again. And, and again, you know, well, tell me what kind of kin we are. And I explained again. And, you know, and then he sort of changed the conversation and, a couple of months later, we wound up going to visit. You know, if, if he wasn't sure what kind of kin we were, he was still very either curious or trusting because I said, when we want, you know, we'd like to come down to visit. He said, sure, come on. So we did travel back to Georgia, took him out to dinner. 
And on the ride back to his apartment in the car, he said, okay, tell me what kind of kin we are. And, you know, sort of did the deep breath. And I explained one more time. He said, I don't know how that can be. He said, you know, he said, my, my mama and my daddy were together all that time. And even if it was true, my mama would have told me. And I'm saying, no, I don't think so. And I, I knew when his parents, you know, career paths coincided. And it was several years after I was born. You know, I explained to him, I said, I was born in August of 1947. and I was conceived in August of 47 in San Francisco. Your mother was skating with the Ice Follies, and they were in August, in San Francisco in August of 47. So he took a deep breath, and we got back to the apartment. He went into one of the rooms and came back with a big roll of posters, and they were for ice capades. And he said, well, I'll show you. He said, my mama and my daddy were, were together. And he, he took out the one for 1945 and rolled it out and had all the performers' names. And there's his daddy's name. But he sort of went down and mama wasn't there. So he rolled that one up, took out 46 and, you know, fairly well assured that she'd be there. And again, she was not. And I said, Ted, before you roll out the next one, I said, yeah, she's not going to be there. But he rolled it out and he looked and, you know, daddy was there. Mama was not. So he kind of rolled him back up, took him back in the other room, came back with a big photograph album. And it turned out my mother was a meticulous person in terms of, of capturing her career via career versus, you know, versus snapshots. And this was an album full of little three by three, you know, brownie snapshots. You know, you're too young to remember brownies. But, well, you know, I, had, I had enough of a <laughs> photography to career to appreciate that. Yeah, right. just little black and white photographs, and all of them marked with you know where did it come from, and when was it taken, and you know, and she started in 1943, I think, when she was in in Cincinnati skating, and so he was flipping pages, and as he got to the to 1946, he said, "Ted, when you turn there, I said you may very well find San Francisco in 1947." He said, no, well, he said, I don't know. He said, my mama would have told me. And he flipped the page. And there in the midst of this page of black and white snapshots was one color snapshot. And I use it on the, the cover of my book. And I, I don't know how well this shows up here. But, yeah, this is my birth mother. And the top of it says August 1947, San Francisco, California. And he kind of looked at it, and at that point, he just folded up the book and took it back into the other room and came back with a couple of beers. And we just talked about other stuff. And the next day, we sort of revisited the the entire discussion. And and I had brought a copy, a photocopy of my adoption decree. And I said, Ted, I understand. I said, I don't want anything from you. Don't want anything from you, you know, from our late mother. I said, I just want to connect and I'd like to learn whatever I can. And so I brought this, you know, and this is, you know, this is a document that basically said your mother placed me for adoption with my parents. These signatures are my parents. These signatures are their, this signature is their attorney. And I trust from what I've seen that this signature is your mother's. And he kind of looked at it and just folded it back up and handed it back to me. And he said, you, you keep it. I said, it's a photostat. It doesn't have any real legal value at this point. 
so, you know, we, we finished our visit. We went home and during the middle of the week, he called me and, and we talked and he said, well, I took my, took that piece of paper you gave me down to the rehab facility where he had been a patient or been a, a resident. I said, okay. So I said, what do you do with it? He said, well, I showed it so and so. He's the, he's the administrator. Okay. I said, what did he say? You know, and he said, well, he looked at it and he asked me, is that your mother's signature? And there's a long pause. I said, well, what did you say? He said, well, yeah, I, I did. I told him his mama's signature. I said, well, what did he say? And he said, Ted, if that's your mother's signature, it looks like you've got yourself a brother. And <laughs> from that day on, he's, yeah, he's been as good as gold. You know, he's, you know, he's, he's been very communicative. He's been very accepting. And, you know, he, I, I sort of feel like I was, maybe this discovery was all, you know, put in place by, you know, the fact that he really has a very, very small universe right now. And I think adding a brother to it probably was a, you know, was, was a blessing. On the paternal side, I, even before I started my search or thought about starting my search, I sent in a DNA sample at Christmas of 2016. And that was purely just to learn my ethnicity. As I said, I had always identified as Sicilian and Ukrainian. And, you know, that, that was fine. So, you know, it, it took forever to come back. And I suppose it was their holiday rush. And I kept on getting, you know, thanks for your patience. We're really busy, but your, your results will be back soon. In May, I got a, got the results back and, you know, I found out that I was 50% Eastern European, 25 to 30% Ashkenazi Jew. So again, Eastern European and then a mix of, of Northern European and Great Britain. So I, I went to the, to the list of relatives and there was one close relationship, which I believe was identified at the time as a, as a first cousin. And I didn't recognize the name from my mother's side. And I knew all the names pretty much by that point. So I looked and I, you know, and it turned out that, you know, not only was, was this person active on ancestry, but he was, he was a Jehovah's witness and had an extensive family tree. And when I looked at it, I found out that he had six aunts and one uncle. And I said, well, if he's my cousin, then that uncle has to be my father. So I contacted him. I sent him an email and contrary to the lady with the, with the box in Georgia, he's back in back to me in 10 minutes. And he said, this is fabulous. He said, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm really excited. And yeah, what you're thinking is probably true. He said, but give me some time to kind of digest this. And about 15 minutes later, I got another email from him saying that, you know, given the amount of DNA, I think actually we may be half brothers because, you know, looking at the relationships, you said your mother was in San Francisco when you were conceived. That one uncle never left Texas. And he said, furthermore, looking at your DNA, you know, he said, unless your mother had a significant portion of the Jewish DNA, my uncle had none. But he said, but I'm 25% Jewish through my father. And as it turned out, he was my half brother. And, you know, and his father was our father. And, you know, he, he, this is a person who never left San Francisco. He happened at the time. He had ties, by the way, to to Ice Follies. 
you know, he had, he had friends there. So it would have been a natural, a natural point of connection for he and my birth mother. So fascinating that you were able to put all of those pieces together really in relatively short order. Like I said, all the details of what you were able to put together in, in the book are, are just really incredible. Was it scary for you reaching out to people who were connected to your birth parents and wondering about that sense of belonging? And obviously you shared, you know, your story with Ted, there was a lot of back and forth because really, I mean, I mean, these revelations about um, adoption don't just affect, you know, us as adoptees, because there's, there's so many pieces to the puzzle. There's so many people that are connected. Um, but so how, what was that experience like of like wondering, you know, will they accept me or reject me? Were you kind of beyond, you know, needing that piece? Yeah. You know, it's 70 years old. I figured I'd gone for a long time, not knowing. And I found that if I found out that they were not comfortable, I think I would have quietly backed away and left it at that knowing what I had found out at that point. I think the one piece that would have been very troubling and, you know, sadly my, my birth mother was deceased at that point was if she was still alive and she had uh, said, no, I don't want that, that contact, but that, that wasn't the case. So that the flip side of that is if I have a, a regret through this process is that I didn't have the opportunity to meet her and didn't have the opportunity to, to say you made a difficult decision and the decision turned out for the best as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I thank you for sharing that perspective because we've talked about that here on the Adoption Connection is that each adoptee really does have a unique story, a unique perspective, a unique way of processing. And there are adoptees who really struggle with their birth parents or birth mom's decision to make that they feel like it was started a journey of a lot of questions and grief and loss. Um, They struggle to find that sense of belonging. Uh, But then there are others who look at it and think it wasn't so bad or, you know, I, you know, I enjoyed my life, you know, as, you know, with my adoptive parents, I, you know, I understand on, on some cognitive level why that was such a hard decision or why she would have made that decision. And so I just appreciate your voice in the conversation and, and to say, you know, this is just the way, this is the way it went for me. And, um, and again, because I think there aren't as many adoptees sharing what this experience is like from your perspective, which was, I didn't even know I was adopted for so long. Right. And then kind of coming into, you know, to such a kind of a massive discovery and then, you know, kind of dropping that bombshell on half brothers and and all of these things. It's, it really is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, the paternal half brother could not have been more embracing, you know, his, his mom was a little concerned at first and then she did the the mathematics and realized that she and her husband connected after I was conceived. And I, I had the pleasure of meeting her and she was again, you know, with in, in a story with so much generosity from other people, you know, she wanted to meet me and she sat me down. She said, sit down here. I want to tell you about your father. You know, you deserve to know. And yet she, it was not all, you know, all, all roses and, and sweet things. You know, he was kind of a, compunctual and compulsive man and she was his third of five wives so you can imagine that her her story may have been a little bit yeah a little bit influenced 
But yeah, even my my half brother early on said, I, "I don't know who your your adoptive parents were, but you did better with them than you would have with my father." Mm, so and interesting. Yeah, which is a that's a that's a sad thing to hear from somebody. But he, I, you know, I give him all sorts of credit for the honesty. I know you've been a little bit more active in the adoption community as you've written the book, as you've started to get it out there into the community. You know, your experience was shaped by a time and a culture that was so different than what we are currently experiencing. You know, what would you say to either one um, adoptees currently who may be struggling with some sense of belonging or some sense of, of knowing or wanting to put together some of the pieces that you were able to and or to adoptive parents who are, you know, just doing their their very best to try to help their kids find some sense of healing and belonging. Do you have pearly world words of wisdom for, for either of those or both? <laughs> yeah, I, I do get asked that. And it's, it's kind of the same answer as, you know, as I get a- asked about how do you write a book? And I, you know, my, the, I guess the single word is start, you know, I, th- I think you need to confront this situation and, you know, to the, to the, the degree that you're able take a deep breath and make yourself comfortable with it. And I realize that's easier said than done in many circumstances. But I think to adoptive parents, if, you know, if, if this hasn't been a discussion item, you know, I, I think it should be with, with DNA out there now, you know, with consumer DNA testing, there are no secrets anymore. And it really is ultimately a matter of time. Uh, I think to to adoptees, if they feel like there have been secrets kept from them, uh, I think probably again acknowledge the fact that yeah you know, that it may hurt you, but also try to think in terms of why is it being kept a secret or why has it been kept a secret? And you know, going back to my era, and as you said, there aren't a whole lot of us around or a lot of us communicating communicating stories. You know, people were instructed to do that. You know, my, my mother was instructed to have, right up until I was two to hold me and say, you are a wonderful adopted baby and I love you. You know, I didn't start really understanding anything until I guess I was three because I don't recall any of that. So, you know, I, I think it's, you know, so for the older folks, you know, give it some understanding. You know, and a lot of, I think they're probably older adoptees who, who, you know, unfortunately don't have their parents and maybe not anyone to ask, but. But, you know, take a step back and say, you know, why? You know, why was it kept a secret? And I think, you know, it's if there's anyone around who knows, start asking questions because inevitably you're going to want to know where did I come from and I'd like to learn something about it. As as I mentioned earlier, I had that one cousin who, who I said, tell me about my adoption. And she told me two different things. She said, number one, your mother was an ice skater. And that was at a time when I was still fussing with that I really find the right person. And so that confirmed that I had. And then later on, she said, well, you were named after so-and-so. He arranged your adoption. And that tied two pieces. It tied my birth mother together with my adoptive parents because it was somebody that, that my mother's family knew. And it was somebody that my adoptive parents knew. And I think what you said all the way back at the beginning was no one was talking about it. So even though you had discovered, made this discovery on your own, 
it felt like you knew intuitively no one wanted really to talk about it. It didn't feel like it was open for discussion. And we hear that a lot. Uh, we hear that advice given a lot in the adoption community to adoptive parents, which is we as adoptive parents have to take the lead in providing these open spaces for communication because our kids are following our lead. And so if we're not talking about it because we assume they're not talking about right. it, right. <laughs> then, then it kind of perpetuates this, yeah. this secrecy when someone has to break the silence and it can feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. As I said, you know, DNA or not, there are just no secrets anymore. You know, if, if it's not a DNA revelation, it's going to be somebody, you know, in the course of conversation saying something that's going to get questioned. And I, I, I don't think there's any shame in talking about it from, from either side of the, of that coin. You know, it's certainly as adoptees, it's our life. We have a right to know. And, you know, from the standpoint of adoptive parents, you know, there's certainly no shame in, in having, you know, having the need or the desire to, to adopt children. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ed, I am really thankful for your time today, joining us on the podcast for the time you took to put the story together and putting it out there in the world. I, I think stories are so important in how we kind of make sense of and of all of the complexities that are all the pieces of adoption. And so I appreciate your contribution to that conversation for sure. Well, I appreciate you inviting me to talk about it. Thank you. Well, I hope you all found that to be as fascinating as I did. When I listened to this interview, I thought, this is one of the more interesting stories I've heard in a long time. And the fact that he discovered his mother was a prominent figure skater. I mean, that is unique. And um, Melissa will share some resources for you, but you can actually see some footage of her skating yourself. Yeah. And I got to visit on a Friday afternoon and he was just so delightful. I was just so fascinated. I could have talked to him for hours. I thought he was well-spoken and I appreciated his view on his adoption story. Cause like we have said, there are so many views and, you know, he comes from an era of adoption that a lot of us, you know, have not been able to really explore. We will have links to Ed's website and his book. His book is called the gift best given. And I did have a chance to read it. We talked a little bit about it in the interview. It is a great story. Um, and then Ed's, website is degangiauthor.com. So if you'd like to see a little bit more, we'll also put a really fun YouTube link in the show notes where, like Lisa mentioned, you can see Ed's birth mother skating in a movie she was in. Which so fun. I really enjoyed watching that as well. So all of those things will be in the show notes at theadoptionconnection.com slash 129. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.